everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today's story, Love on the Bon Dieu, by Kate Chopin. She was born Catherine O'Plaherty in St. Louis, Missouri, on February 8, 1850, and is considered today to be one of the first feminist authors of the 20th century, and she's often credited for introducing the modern feminist literary movement. Chopin was following an unconventional path as a housewife until an unfortunate tragedy. The untimely death of her husband altered the course of her life. She became a talented and prolific short story writer, influenced primarily by the French short story author Guy de Maupassant. And we've done a number of his stories here. She once commented on that influence by saying, I read his stories and marveled at them. Here was life, not fiction. For where were the plots, the old-fashioned mechanism and stage trapping that in a vague, unthinkable way I had fancied were essential to the art of story-making? Here was a man who had escaped from tradition and authority, who had entered into himself and looked out upon life through his own being and with his own eyes, and who, in a direct and simple way, told us what he saw. Very few writers can bring to life an empty page the way that Kate Chopin does. Her stories center around the bayous of southern Louisiana around the turn of the century and give you a sense that you're there as you read or hear her tales. And now today's story, Love on the Bon Dieu, by Kate Chopin. Upon the pleasant veranda of Père Antoine's cottage that adjoined the church, a young girl had long been seated, awaiting his return. It was the eve of Easter Sunday, and since early afternoon the priest had been engaged in hearing the confessions of those who wished to make their Easter's the following day. The girl did not seem impatient at his delay. On the contrary, it was very restful to her to lie back in the big chair she had found there and peep through the thick curtain of vines at the people who occasionally passed along the village street. She was slender, with a frailness that indicated lack of wholesome and plentiful nourishment. A pathetic, uneasy look was in her gray eyes, and even faintly stamped her features, which were fine and delicate. In lieu of a hat, a barege veil covered her light brown and abundant hair. She wore a coarse white cotton josie and a blue calico skirt that only half concealed her tattered shoes. As she sat there, she held carefully in her lap a parcel of eggs securely fastened in a red bandana handkerchief. Twice already a handsome, stalwart young man in quest of the priest had entered the yard and penetrated to where she sat. At first they had exchanged the uncompromising howdy of strangers and nothing more. The second time, finding the priest still absent, he hesitated to go at once. Instead he stood upon the step and narrowing his brown eyes, gazed beyond the river, off towards the west, where a murky streak of mist was spreading across the sun. "'It looks like Moraine,' he remarked, slowly and carelessly. "'We done had bout enough,' she replied, in much the same tone. "'It's no chance to thin out the cotton,' he went on. "'And the bon Dieu,' she resumed. "'It's only today you can cross him on foot.' "'You live yonder on the bon Dieu, don't?' he asked looking at her for the first time since he had spoken. "'Yes, by Nidhabo, monsieur,' 
"'Instinctive courtesy held him from questioning her further. "'But he seated himself on the step, "'evidently determined to wait there for the priest. "'He said no more, "'but sat scanning critically the steps, "'the porch, and pillar beside him, "'from which he occasionally tore away "'little pieces of detached wood, "'where it was beginning to rot at its base. "'A click at the side gate "'that communicated with the churchyard "'soon announced Père Antoine's return.' He came hurriedly across the garden path between the tall, lusty rose bushes that lined either side of it, which were now fragrant with blossoms. His long, flapping cassock added something of height to his undersized, middle-aged figure, as did the skull cap which rested securely on the back of his head. He saw only the young man at first, who rose at his approach. "'Well, Azenor,' he called cheerily in French, extending his hand. "'How is this?' "'I expected you all the week.' "'Yes, monsieur, but I knew well what you wanted with me, "'and I was finishing the doors for Grasse-Léon's new house.' "'Saying which, he drew back, "'and indicated by a motion and look "'that someone was present who had a prior claim "'upon Père Antoine's attention. "'Ah, Lely!' the priest exclaimed "'when he had moved to the porch "'and saw her there behind the vines. "'Have you been waiting here since you confessed? "'Surely an hour ago.' "'Yes, monsieur. "'You should rather have made some visits in the village, child. "'I'm not acquainted with anyone in the village,' she returned. "'The priest, as he spoke, had drawn a chair "'and seated himself beside her "'with his hands comfortably clasping his knees. "'He wanted to know how things were out on the bayou. "'And how is the grandmother?' he asked. "'As cross and crabbed as ever?' And with that, he added reflectively, good for ten years yet. I said only yesterday to Boutran, you know Boutran, he works on Leblanc's Bon Dieu place. And that Madame Zidore, how is it with her, Boutran? I believe God has forgotten here on earth. It isn't that, your reverence, said Boutran, but it's neither God nor the devil that wants her and Père Antoine laughed with a jovial frankness that took all the sting of ill-nature from his very pointed remarks. Laylee did not reply when he spoke of her grandmother. She only pressed her lips firmly together and picked nervously at the red bandana. "'I have come to ask, Monsieur Antoine,' she began, lower than she needed to speak, for Azenor had withdrawn at once to the far end of the porch, "'to ask if you will give me a little scrap of paper.' "'a piece of writing for Monsieur Chartrand at the store over there. "'I want new shoes and stockings for Easter, "'and I have brought eggs to trade for them. "'He says he is willing, yes, "'if he was sure I would bring more every week "'till the shoes are paid for.' "'With good-natured indifference, "'Père Antoine wrote the order that the girl desired. "'He was too familiar with distress "'to feel keenly for a girl who was able to buy Easter shoes "'and pay for them with eggs.' She went immediately away then, after shaking hands with the priest and sending a quick glance of her pathetic eyes towards Azenor, who had turned when he heard her rise and nodded when he caught the look. Through the vines he watched her cross the village street. How is it that you do not know Lely, Azenor? You surely must have seen her pass your house often. It lies on her way to the bon Dieu. No, I don't know her. I have never seen her, the young man replied, as he seated himself, after the priest, 
and kept his eyes absently fixed on the store across the road where he had seen her enter. She is the granddaughter of that Madame Isidore. What? Madame Isidore, whom they drove off the island last winter? Yes, yes. Well, you know, they say the old woman stole wooden things. I don't know how true it is, and destroyed people's property out of pure malice. And she lives now on the Bonjour? Yes, on the Blatt's place, in a perfect wreck of a cabin. You see, she gets it for nothing. Not a negro on the place, but has refused to live in it. Surely it can't be that old abandoned hovel near the swamp that Michonne occupied ages ago. That is the one, the very one. And the girl lives there with that old wretch? The young man marveled. Old wretch, to be sure, Azenor. But what can you expect from a woman who never crosses the threshold of God's house? Who even tried to hinder the child doing so as well? But I went to her, I said, See here, Madame Zador, you know it's my way to handle such people without gloves. You may damn your soul if you choose, I told her. That's a privilege which we all have. But none of us has a right to imperil the salvation of another. I want to see Laylee at Mass hereafter on Sundays, or you will hear from me. And I shook my stick under her nose. Since then the child has never missed a Sunday. But she's half starved. You can see that. You saw how shabby she is, how broken her shoes are. She's at Chartrand's now, trading for new ones with those eggs she brought. Poor thing. There's no doubt of her being ill-treated. Boutrade says he thinks Madame Zador even beats the child. I don't know how true it is, for no power can make her utter a word against her grandmother. As an or, whose face was a kind and sensitive one, had paled with distress as the priest spoke, and now at these final words he quivered as though he felt the sting of a cruel blow upon his own flesh. But no more was said of Lely, for Père Antoine drew the young man's attention to the carpenter work which he wished to entrust to him. When they had talked the matter over in all its lengthy details, Azenor mounted his horse and rode away. A moment's gallop carried him outside the village. Then came a half-mile strip along the river to cover. Then the lane to enter, in which stood his dwelling midway, upon a low, pleasant knoll. As Azenor turned into the lane, he saw the figure of Laley far ahead of him. Somehow he had expected to find her there, and he watched her again as he had done through Père Antoine's vines. When she passed his house, he wondered if she would turn to look at it. But she did not. How could she know it was his? Upon reaching it himself, he did not enter the yard, but stood there motionless, his eyes always fastened upon the girl's figure. He could not see, away off there, how coarse her garments were. She seemed, through the distance that divided them, as slim and delicate as a flower stalk. He stayed till she reached the turn of the lane and disappeared into the woods. We'll return right after this message from our sponsors. And now we return to our episode. Mass had not yet begun when Azenor tiptoed into church on Easter morning. He did not take his place with the congregation, but stood close to the holy water font and watched the people who entered. Almost every girl who passed him wore a white mull, a dotted Swiss, 
or a fresh-starched muslin at least. They were bright with ribbons that hung from their persons, and flowers that bedecked their hats. Some carried fans and cambric handkerchiefs. Most of them wore gloves, and were odorant of poudre de riz and nice toilet waters, while all carried gay little baskets filled with Easter eggs. But there was one who came empty-handed, save for the worn prayer book which she bore. It was Laylee, the veil upon her head, and wearing the blue print and cotton bodice which she had worn the day before. He dipped his hand into the holy water when she came, and held it out to her, though he had not thought of doing this for the others. She touched his fingers with the tips of her own, making a slight inclination as she did so, and after a deep genuflection before the blessed sacrament, passed on to the side. He was not sure if she had known him. He knew she had not looked into his eyes, for he would have felt it. He was angered against other young women who passed him, because of their flowers and ribbons, when she wore none. He himself did not care, but he feared she might, and watched her narrowly to see if she did. But it was plain that Laylee did not care. Her face, as she seated herself, settled into the same restful lines it had worn yesterday, when she sat in Père Antoine's big chair. It seemed good to her to be there. Sometimes she looked up at the little colored panes through which the Easter sun was streaming, then at the flaming candles, like stars, or at the embowered figures of Joseph and Mary, flanking the central tabernacle which shrouded the risen Christ. Yet she liked just as well to watch the young girls in their spring freshness, or to sensuously inhale the mingled odor of flowers and incense that filled the temple. Laily was among the last to quit the church. When she walked down the clean pathway that led from it to the road, she looked with pleased curiosity towards the groups of men and maidens who were gaily matching their Easter eggs under the shade of the chinaberry trees. Azenor was among them, and when he saw her coming solitary down the path, he approached her and, with a smile, extended his hat, whose crown was quite lined with the pretty colored eggs. "'You must have forgot to bring eggs,' he said. "'Take some of mine.' "'Non, merci,' she replied, flushing and drawing back. "'But he urged them anew upon her. "'Much pleased, then, she bent her pretty head over the hat "'and was evidently puzzled to make a selection "'among so many that were beautiful. "'He picked out one for her, a pink one, "'dotted with white clover leaves. "'Yeah,' he said, handing it to her. "'I think this is the prettiest.' "'And it looks strong, too. "'I'm sure it will break out all the rest.' "'And he playfully held out another, "'half hidden in his fist, "'for her to try its strength upon. "'But she refused to. "'She would not risk the ruin of her pretty egg. "'Then she walked away, "'without once having noticed that the girls, "'whom Azenor had left, "'were looking curiously at her. "'When he rejoined them, "'he was hardly prepared for their greeting. "'It startled him. "'How come you talk to that girl? "'She's real can I, her,' was what one of them said to him. "'Who say so? Who say she's can I? "'If it's a man, I'll smash his head,' he exclaimed, livid. "'They all laughed merrily at this. "'And if it's a lady, as and all, what you going to do about it?' "'asked another, quizzingly. "'Tain't no lady. No lady would say that about a po' girl. "'What she don't even know.' 
He turned away, and emptying all his eggs into the hat of the little urchin who stood near, walked out of the churchyard. He did not stop to exchange another word with anyone, neither with the men who stood all en demanches before the stores, nor the women who were mounting upon horses and into vehicles, or walking in groups to their homes. He took a shortcut across the cotton field that extended back of the town, and walking rapidly, soon reached his home. It was a pleasant house, a few rooms and many windows, with fresh air blowing through from every side. His workshop was beside it. A broad strip of greensward, studded here and there with trees, sloped down to the road. Azenor entered the kitchen, where an amiable old black woman was chopping onion and sage at a table. Tranquilly, he said abruptly, there's a young girl gone to pass here after a while. She's got a blue dress and white josie on and a veil on her head. When you see her, I want you to go to the road and make her rest there on the bench and ask her if she don't want a cup of coffee. I saw her go to communion, me, so she didn't eat any breakfast. Everybody else from out of town that went to communion got invited somewhere or another. It's enough to make a person sick to see such meanness. And you want for me to go down to the gate just so and ask her pine blank if she wants some coffee? Asked the bewildered Tranquiline. I don't care if you ask her point blank or not, but you do like I say. Tranquiline was leaning over the gate when Laylee came along. Howdy, offered the woman. Howdy, the girl returned. Did you see a yellow cap with black spots tearing down the lane, Missy? No, non yellow. "'and not with black spot. "'Mays I see one little white calf "'tied by a rope yonder round the bend. "'But that one hit. "'This here one was yellow. "'I hope he done flung himself down the bank "'and broke his neck. "'Sarve him right. "'But where do you come from, child? "'You look plumb more out. "'Sit down down on that bench "'and let me fetch you a cup of coffee.' "'Azenor had already in his eagerness "'arranged a tray.' "'upon which was a smoking cup of café au lait. "'He had buttered and jellied generous slices of bread "'and was searching wildly for something "'when Tranquiline re-entered. "'What become of that half a chicken pie, Tranquiline, "'that was here in the guard manger yesterday?' "'What chicken pie? What guard manger?' "'blustered the woman. "'Like we got moan one guard manger in the house. "'Tranquiline? "'You just like old Mame Azenor used to be, you is.' You speck chicken pie gwan last eternally? When something done spilt, I flings it away. That's me. That's Tranquiline. So Azenor resigned himself. What else could he do? And sent the tray, incomplete, as he fancied it, out to Laylee. He trembled at the thought of what he did. He, whose nerves were usually as steady as some piece of steel mechanism. Would it anger her if she suspected? Would it please her if she knew? Would she say this or that to Tranquiline? And would Tranquiline tell him truly what she said? How she looked? As it was Sunday, Asnor did not work that afternoon. Instead, he took a book out from under the trees, as he often did, and sat reading it, from the first sound of the Vesper bell that came faintly across the fields, till the Angelus. All that time, he turned many a page, yet in the end did not know what he had read. With his pencil he had traced Laylee upon every margin, 
and was saying it softly to himself. Another Sunday, Azenor saw Lely at Mass. And again. Once he walked with her and showed her the shortcut across the cotton field. She was very glad that day and told him she was going to work. Her grandmother said she might. She was going to hoe up in the fields with Monsieur Leblot's hands. He entreated her not to, and when she asked his reason, he could not tell her, but turned and tore shyly and savagely at the elder blossoms that grew along the fence. Then they stopped where she was going to cross the fence from the field into the lane. He wanted to tell her that it was his house which they could see not far away, but he dared not to, since he'd fed her there on the morning she was hungry. "'And you say your grandma's going to let you work? She keeps you from working, don't?' He wanted to question her about her grandmother and could think of no other way to begin. "'Poor old grandmare,' she answered. "'I don't believe she knows most of the time what she's doing. Sometimes she say, "'I ain't no better than one nigger.' "'And she forced me to work. "'Then she says she know I'm going to be one canile like mammon, "'and she make me set down still, "'like she would want to kill me if I would move. "'Her? "'She only want to be out in the wood day and night.' Day and night. She ain't got her right head, poor grandmare. I know she ain't. Laylee had spoken low and in jerks, as if every word gave her pain. Azenor could feel her distress as plainly as he saw it. He wanted to say something to her, to do something for her. But her mere presence paralyzed him into inactivity, except his pulses that beat like hammers when he was with her. Such a poor, shabby little thing as she was, too. I'm going to wait here next Sunday for you, Laylee, he said, when the fence was between them, and he thought he had said something very daring. But the next Sunday, she didn't come. She was neither at the appointed place of the meeting in the lane, nor was she at Mass. Her absence, so unexpected, affected Asinor like a calamity. Late in the afternoon, when he could stand the trouble and bewilderment of it no longer, he went and leaned over Père Antoine's fence. The priest was picking the slugs from his roses on the other side. "'That young girl from the Bon Dieu,' said Azenor, "'she was not at Mass today. "'I suppose her grandmother's forgotten your warning.' "'No,' answered the priest. "'The child is ill, I hear. "'Boutran tells me she's been ill for several days "'from overwork in the fields. "'I shall go out tomorrow to see about her. I'd go today if I could. The child is ill, was all Azenor heard or understood of Père Antoine's words. He turned and walked resolutely away, like one who determined suddenly upon action after meaningless hesitation. He walked towards his home and passed it, as if it were a spot that did not concern him. He went on down the lane and into the wood where he had seen Laylee disappear that day. Here all was shadow, for the sun had dipped too low in the west to send a single ray through the dense foliage of the forest. Now that he found himself on the way to Laylee's home, he strove to understand why he had not gone there before. He often visited other girls in the village and neighborhood. Why not have gone to her as well? The answer lay too deep in his heart for him to be more than half conscious of it. Fear had kept him. Dread to see her desolate life face to face, he did not know how he could bear it. But now he was going to her at last. She was ill, 
"'he would stand upon that dismantled porch "'he could just remember. "'Doubtless Mayhem Zidore would come out to know his will, "'and he would tell her that Père Antoine "'had sent to inquire how Mademoiselle Lely was. "'No. Why drag in Père Antoine? "'He would simply stand boldly and say, "'Madame Zidore, I learned that Lely is ill. "'I have come to know if it's true "'and to see her if I may.' When Azenor reached the cabin where Laley dwelt, all sign of day had vanished. Dusk had fallen swiftly after the sunset. The moss that hung heavy from great live-oak branches was making fantastic silhouettes against the eastern sky that the big round moon was beginning to light. Off in the swamp beyond the bayou, hundreds of dismal voices were droning a lullaby. Upon the hovel itself, a stillness like death rested. Oftener than once, Azenor tapped upon the door, which was closed as well as it could be, without obtaining a reply. He finally approached one of the small, unglazed windows in which coarse mosquito netting had been fastened, and looked into the room. By the moonlight slanting in, he could see Laley stretched upon a bed, but of Madame Zador there was no sign. Laley! he called softly. Laley! The girl slightly moved her head upon the pillow. Then he boldly opened the door and entered. Upon a wretched bed, over which was spread a cover of patched calico, Laley lay, her frail body only half concealed by the single garment that was upon it. One hand was plunged beneath her pillow, the other, which was free, he touched. It was as hot as a flame, and so was her head. He knelt sobbing upon the floor beside her, "'and called her his love and his soul. "'He begged her to speak a word to him, to look at him. "'But she only muttered disjointedly "'that the cotton was all turned to ashes in the fields "'and the blades of the corn were in flames. "'If he was choked with love and grief to see her so, "'he was moved by anger as well. "'Rage against himself, against Père Antoine, "'against the people upon the plantation and in the village.' who had so abandoned a helpless creature to misery and maybe death. Because she had been silent, had not lifted her voice in complaint, they believed she suffered no more than she could bear. But surely the people could not be utterly without heart. There must be one somewhere with the spirit of Christ. Père Antoine would tell him of such a one, and he would carry Laley to her, out of this atmosphere of death, he was in haste to be gone with her. He fancied every moment of delay was a fresh danger threatening her life. He folded the rude bed cover over Laley's naked limbs and lifted her in his arms. She made no resistance. She seemed only loath to withdraw her hand from beneath the pillow. When she did, he saw that she held lightly but firmly clasped in her encircling fingers the pretty Easter egg he had given her. He uttered a low cry of exultation as the full significance of this came over him. If she had hung for hours upon his neck, telling him that she loved him, he could not have known it more surely than by this sign. Azenor felt if some mysterious bond had all at once drawn them heart to heart and made them one. No need now to go from door to door begging admittance for her. She was his. She belonged to him. He knew now where her place was, whose roof must shelter her, and whose arms must protect her. So Azenor, with his loved one in his arms, walked through the forest, 
sure-footed as a panther. Once, as he walked, he could hear in the distance the weird chant which Madame Zidora was crooning. To the moon, maybe, as she gathered her wood. We'll return right after this message from our sponsors. And now we return to our episode. Once, where the water was trickling cool through rocks, he stopped to lave Laylee's hot cheeks and hands and forehead. He had not once touched his lips to her. But now, when a sudden great fear came upon him, because she did not know him, instinctively he pressed his lips upon hers that were parched and burning. He held them there till hers were soft and pliant from the healthy moisture of his own. Then she knew him. She did not tell him so, but her stiffened fingers relaxed their tense hold upon the Easter bauble. It fell to the ground as she twined her arm around his neck. And he understood. "'Stay close by her, Tranquiline,' said Azenor, when he had laid Lely upon his own couch at home. "'I'm going for the doctor and for Père Antoine. Not because she is going to die,' he added hastily, seeing the awe that crept into the woman's face at mention of the priest. "'She is going to live. Do you think I'd let my wife die, Tranquiline?' Thanks for joining us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. If you enjoy our show, please do share it with others. We would appreciate that very much. And that's how people come to find our show. Also, if you're an Apple listener, please do send us a review. We would appreciate that as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until then, everyone stay safe. And we'll be back soon.